Hey church family, it's so great to be back with you again as we continue our ownership series and we look at one very uh, important and significant part of what it means to take ownership for our church. Now, if you don't know me, my name is Nathan. I'm the pastor of the East Campus and I really am looking forward to looking at some really significant passages of scripture uh, this morning. Uh, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, it's a moment where Jesus uh, really uh, reveals uh, who he is and what he plans to do. Uh, and we'll start looking at uh, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, now keep this uh, place uh, in memory, Caesarea Philippi. It's a significant uh, a place. It's a place that has uh, some significance to what we're going to, to look at this morning. Uh, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, as Jesus asks this question, it's very likely that he's overlooking the town of Caesarea Philippi, standing on a uh, a cliff face or a, a mountain kind of area. Have you ever uh, stood overlooking a city? Have you ever uh, been to a place where you can overlook a whole town or a city and, and just admire it? Maybe you've been up the top of uh, the Empire State Building in New York and you've looked over New York City and the bustling metropolis uh, that it is. Perhaps you've been on the London Eye and you've You've looked over Parliament House and Big Ben and the Thames and, and everything else that, that London is and you've seen the, the smog and, and admired London as the great city uh, that it is. Uh, perhaps you're, you're a true romantic and you, you've gone up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and, and admired Paris uh, from the top of the Eiffel Tower and had a croissant or a Nutella crepe and and enjoyed the city of Paris from above. Have you ever been above something and looked down and gone, that's not really quite as nice? Have you ever looked over a, a, uh, a garbage dump, for, it, for example, and gone, whoa, that is a vast area of just yuckiness? Uh, I, I've looked over areas before and gone, whoa, that is not nice, as I've stood at the, the top of Kibera slum in Nairobi in Kenya, second largest slum in the world, I, I, I began to think, well, this is not a, a particularly nice place. Have you ever stood over a place and gone, this is not only not nice, this place, something really off about it. It's almost evil. I had this experience when I was in Thailand and staying in uh, a place that, that was near um, a place called Nana Plaza. And, you know, you might, you might be aware of these places in Thailand, places like Seoul Cowboy, Nana Plaza, where it's just really like a, a shop, large shopping centre full of every deviant thing for sale, where people are flocking to, to these places just to do awful things, to buy awful things. You know, as I look down over this place, it's just a place of depravity. It's just 
you look down and you think, wow, this is just yuck. This is evil happening here. This is what Jesus is speaking into and over when he's speaking to his disciples. This place, Caesarea Philippi, this is a place of spiritual and moral depravity. It, it, it's, a, it's a place that is known for not being a nice place. You know, and as he speaks, as Jesus speaks here, he, he, he's very likely overlooking a grotto known as the Gates of Hades. It's a dark pit filled with water. It's thought to be a, a gateway to the netherworld in kind of pagan religion. People would throw goats off this, uh, this mountain into this grotto, into the water as sacrifices to the god Pan. Um, and, you know, they were thought to be accepted if they sunk to the bottom of this water, this gateway to the netherworld. And I think this, this whole geographical setting here makes for a very interesting context to what Jesus reveals uh, within uh, Matthew 16. It's an incredibly important question that Jesus asks. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Is. Let's keep on looking at the, the geography for a moment. Caesarea Philippi was a Greco-Roman city. It was located near the ancient city of Dan in the northern part of Israel by Mount Hermon and by the Jordan River. It stood only 25 miles away from Galilee, but the religious practices were vastly different than those in the nearby Jewish town. You know, in Old Testament times, this northeastern region of Israel became a center for Baal worship. In the nearby city of, of Dan, uh, Israelite king Jeroboam built the high place uh, that angered God and eventually led uh, the Israelites to worship false gods. And eventually, the worship of Baal was replaced in this town with the worship of Greek fertility gods. And so it was renamed Peneus when under Greek rule in order of the, the uh, pagan god Dan, uh, Pan. It was then uh, conquered by Romans, and the Romans changed the name again to honour Caesar, and they called it Caesarea Peneus. Uh, and that was, that was uh, under Roman rule until finally they changed it to Caesarea Philippi to honour Herod's son, Philip. This is like Las Vegas. This is like Sin City. This is like Nana Plaza. This is a place that rabbis forbade good Jewish boys from going to, but instead of leading them away, the disciples are led to this place by Jesus. And Jesus in this pagan sin city teaches them a significant lesson. Let's read the whole passage together. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Peter's declaration here is significant. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter hasn't uh, discovered this through his careful decision-making skills. Uh, It hasn't been through his uh, careful detective skill set, but this has been a spiritual revelation. And Jesus uh, uh, says uh, to him that he's going to build his church on this declaration, on this rock. It's actually a play on words because uh, the name Peter means rock. On this rock, I will build my church. All of this is happening in full view of these pagan temples, uh, these pagan gods or imperial cults uh, happening around and underneath them. You know, probably while overlooking Pan's Grotto called the, the Gates of Hades. See the significance there of what Jesus says. Next to the this, uh, this Pan Cave, um, it sounds like a really good pancake restaurant that... Uh, that uh, you might be able to go to. Next is Pan Cave. Uh, these five niches, they're still visible uh, in uh, the, the, the cliff face today. Indented, scalloped areas cut into the cliff. The niches had elaborate temples attached to them for Pan, for Zeus, for Nemesis, a sanctuary to the cult of, of the dancing goats. There was a, a temple here built in honour of Caesarea, uh, of Caesar Augustus. Uh, and this geographical context is where Jesus reveals this incredibly significant thing about himself and what he is establishing. There is significance in not just the context of, uh, of where Jesus is saying it, but the area in which Jesus is speaking. The place is a pagan area. Jesus is saying these things near a a grotto that is titled the gates of Hades thought to be a gateway to the netherworld in this deep debauched town famous for pagan sacrifice and ritual thought to be by pagan religion the gateway to the netherworld Jesus throws down against it all against the powers of the the pagan world against the evil that the pagan world had kind of cultivated in this town Jesus says The gates of Hades will not prevail against what he is establishing. And he calls out and empowers his people in that pagan place. He doesn't just open the door of salvation, but he gives the keys to the house to his people. And here in this place, we see this very significant word appear for the first time in the New Testament. And this word appears in Matthew 16, verse 18, and the word is ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is the Greek word that we often translate to church, but it actually literally means a gathering of those called out or a gathering of those summoned. And this ecclesia is established upon Peter's proclamation. So if we read it with Ecclesia in its context, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my Ecclesia, 
and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. To fully understand this word, we need to understand it in its secular Grecan uh, context. In ancient Grecan culture, the Ecclesia were people who were summoned to vote on issues in the Agora. The word itself literally means, as I said, gathering of those summoned or the gathering of those who are called out. This ancient political ecclesia is often credited with being a very early form of democracy. There were members, uh, there was uh, voting on issues and motions that were passed by the, the raising of hands. There was discussions on the issues of the day. The purpose of this secular ecclesia was to actually summon chosen people in order to convene and uh, an assembly uh, of those chosen to make decisions on behalf of a city or a town. I'm pretty, I think it's pretty significant that this is the word that Jesus is using in this, this moment, ecclesia. I mean, Matthew 16 could have used the Greek word naos, which means temple. And G, but it's pretty significant what Jesus is establishing here. He's not establishing a temple made of bricks and mortar. He is instead establishing a temple that is built with people, called out ones, summoned ones. His temple is wherever his people are. Now, I think we all know this. I don't think any of us go, hey, the church is a building. We know that the church is not a building. The church is a people. The challenge for us is that often we don't behave like that is the truth. We often busy ourselves with building temples, hoping to attract people to our buildings instead of sending people out. We build programs and events instead of healthy people. We make the mistake if we make a mistake if we build temples instead of ecclesia that is, those who are called out. So what is it that makes a church a church? If a church is not a building, what is it that makes a church a church? Well, if you ask people, they're generally going to give you an answer of five things. They're going to say a church is a gathering of people and it's a gathering of people that considers itself a church. So it's not just a, a random gathering of people, it's an actual deliberate gathering of people that considers itself a church. A church has qualified elders present. It regularly uh, practices communion and baptism and it subscribes to an agreed upon doctrinal statement of belief. And you know what? All of these things sound pretty good and they make up part of you know, why we gather and the important parts of uh, of gathering, but did you notice one very important part to this definition is missing? Often we miss the cornerstone in our definition of church. Where is Jesus in all of this? So, what is a church? Let me uh, simply define it in one neat and tidy, concise statement for you this morning. Church is the presence of Jesus among his people called out as a spiritual family to pursue his mission. The cornerstone 
of the church is Jesus. We often see the church as a way to mobilize people to mission, but that is backward. It's a horse before the cart. Often our understanding is that ministry is done for Jesus rather than by Jesus. But it is Jesus who transforms people. It is Jesus who transforms communities. It is Jesus who is the cornerstone of the church. It is Jesus who is using us to do his will. Jesus leads people to mission, which in turn leads to healthy churches. Knowing Jesus leads us to serve Jesus and uh, on his mission, which leads to healthy churches. If you're into really heavy theological statements, it's like this. Christology informs missiology, which in turn leads to a fruitful ecclesiology. The church is built on the presence of Jesus first. The purpose of his called out people second and buildings, programs, structures are supplementary to all of that. Buildings and programs and structures serve the mission of God. The mission of God does not serve the building. Understanding the church as a called out people rather than a, pe- a, a building or a structure changes how we view church and it changes how people can do church. I've attended thriving churches under trees in Kenya and tin sheds in slums, in homes in Cambodia, in mosques in the Middle East, on top of a garbage dump in Egypt, online in a pandemic, in theatres in Paris, in massive ornate traditional churches in Rome and London. Uh, We all know that there is thriving underground churches in places where it's difficult to follow Jesus around the world. And here's the thing. None of these expressions of church are wrong. They only become problematic if the practice of church, the buildings, the programs, the structure side become more important than what Jesus said he was building his church with, and that is people. God forbid, God forbid that we ever, ever put tradition, building programs as more important than the cornerstone Jesus, because at that point, these things have become idols. Thank God, you know, thank God that we have uh, uh, buildings in the east and the north, places that we can use to serve our community. Thank God that people over many years have been faithful and faithfully invested to have these things in service of uh, our local community. But these buildings only exist to serve the larger mission of what Jesus is building and what he is building is people. It is the central outcome of the church to build with people. Knowing that God is building a people rather than a temple made of bricks and mortar allows the church to grow and thrive in any situation, in homes like we're doing now, in the building, in uh, in our workplaces, wherever it is. Church is us brought together and called out and gathered under the banner of Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah, son 
of the living God. That is the rock that Jesus calls out and builds his people on. That proclamation. The events unfolding between Jesus, Peter, and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi let the world know, both seen and unseen, that there would be a coming battle for the souls of men. At the foot of this debauched mountain, the gauntlet was thrown down at Satan's feet, and he was let known that his time was done. How perfect that in one of the most sinful places, Jesus reveals himself to be the true son of God. And it's here that Jesus chooses to deliver a kind of graduation speech to his disciples. At Caesarea Philippi, in that pagan setting, he encouraged his disciples to be set apart ones, that even the worst evils could not prevail against. So too is it for us today. We are not to be locked away. We're not called to hide away, but to be called out, to be a people who are on the move uh, throughout a world that desperately needs Jesus. We need to be going into our own pagan culture rather than locking ourselves away in buildings. Our schools, our workplaces, our churches should instead become staging areas rather than fortresses, places that equip God's people to confront a sinful world rather than hiding away from it, not overcome by a sinful world, but knowing that Jesus's sacrifice, what Jesus has built, shall not be overcome by the sinful world. Is it any wonder that in view of Jesus's establishment of Ecclesia uh, in Matthew 16, then that Peter writes in in, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 around the living uh, living stones and us being a chosen people. From uh, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. You may declare the praises of him who has called you out. Now, this is literally the word ecclesia, but it's uh, uh, jumbled up a bit. It's a kaleo ek, but it's still called out. He who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received 
mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is building us into his temple rather than buildings made of bricks and mortar. God builds his temple wherever he sends his people. Where you are, the church is. He has called us. He sends us and no power of hell can prevail against us. Here's the challenge. How do we live as the church in a society that doesn't really know us or understand us? Well, Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 and he extends it this way. And I'm not going to exegete this passage. I'm just going to read it to you and I'm going to let uh, it sink into where you're at. You can hear the words and apply them for your, yourself. Because as I wrote this sermon, as I looked at, at 1 Peter chapter 2, this passage really hit me hard in the gut, especially for where we are at in the state of Victoria. And it made me ask the question, am I living such a life? From verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and, and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God to you. Uh, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. You should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to he who tr uh, uh, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. We live called out, but not locked away from our culture, from our society, from a sinful world, called out, but not locked away. We live as the church in full view, no matter the consequence, no matter what that means, we live in full view, living out 
what God has commanded of us. We can live as a church in our culture, just as Peter outlined, called out, even if it hates us. We are the church. And like it or not, we are living in a pagan culture. It doesn't matter what we are going through. We can do it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against what God has established. And you know what? It's not because of awesome programs. It's about Jesus. It's because of Jesus. I know for myself and for Charles, we don't want to grow a church for numbers sake. To build gigantic buildings as a temple. We want to build the body of Christ. We want to build the temple of God. And that means building people. Rather than build it and they will come. Build a building, build a program, building an event and they will come. We simply need to live it in our society. That's the challenge for us today. That's ownership for us today to go beyond simply attending or trying to attract people to a building and instead living lives that display Christ's goodness to those around us. As Peter wrote, living such good lives among the pagans that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. We need to humble ourselves and change our posture from I build the church for Jesus to Jesus uses me to build his church. It's a small change, but it has significant outcomes. Simply put, if living it becomes our focus, our daily worship looks like taking the call uh, uh, to to love our neighbor seriously. Uh, um, Living out the character of Jesus becomes our our worship in our neighborhoods. Graciously giving because uh, we have uh, graciously received and making uh, our lives honest, real examples of faith in our society's ever-growing diverse marketplace of ideas. If we live an honest life of faith, Jesus will use it to build his church. You know, a recent Barna study pointed out that despite a growing epidemic of loneliness in our society, very few people are finding community in the church. In fact, that lack of community is one of the very reasons young people are giving for leaving the church altogether. Many of those do not expect to find community in the church and have not found community in the church. That's absolutely tragic. That is horribly tragic. We exist for people. We exist for community. We exist as a church to glorify God in our community and to love one another, to build communities that thrive, not buildings that bustle. But if people come to our churches and they just find awesome services but no community, then we've failed. We've missed the mark. We've gotten it wrong. We're here to build ecclesia, 
a community of those called out. Right now, we have an opportunity to build community as we meet in smaller groups and in homes. Right now, we have the opportunity to further build uh, um, a community in the way that Jesus taught us to and to love one another more deeply as we meet in smaller groups. You know, it doesn't matter where we're meeting, whether it be in a church building, in homes, uh, online, in whatever context, it doesn't matter. It matters whether or not we're building community in those contexts, building the body of Christ, the kingdom of God in that context. Wherever we are, whatever situation we are in, we are a gathering of the cold. And we have an opportunity right now, where we're at, with what we have to build the church. We need to take ownership of that. Ownership is the understanding that we don't attend church, we are the church. It's not the the pastor's responsibility to build the wiggiest, uh, most contemporant lights flashingest service that somehow uh, attracts people uh, to, to the service just because it's so, uh, so cool. Um, we actually shouldn't rely on that whatsoever. We don't rely on buildings, programs or coolness. We take ownership of growing the church by knowing that we are the church and that where we go, we extend the kingdom. We don't uh, extend the building, we extend the kingdom. We don't extend programs, we extend the presence of God. God is building his church through us, with us. That is what God builds. He builds an ecclesia, a called out people not buildings made of bricks and mortar. And when we go out, when we take ownership, we know that God will use us to build his church. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you use us this week to build your church. Let us be an example of your kingdom in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, Lord God, let people see your kingdom. Let people see you through us. Today, Lord God, we pray that you build your church. Build your community, Lord God. Let our church be known for its love for one another. The community that you're building through us, Lord God. Let us take ownership of the church. In your name. Amen. If you don't know uh, what it means to be part of the family of God, the ecclesia, this, this church, what it means to be part of uh, uh, the community uh, of believers, if you don't know the good uh, news of Jesus Christ, that he has set us free from, from our sin, the evil things uh, that we have done and welcomed us into his family and 
uh, being welcomed into God's family means we've received eternal life and life in heaven with him. If you do not know uh, the goodness of God and his freedom this morning, I would love for you to get in contact with me so I can uh, talk to you about it even more. You know, you can jump on the website through the contact us form. Um, it's uh, unihillchurch.com.au. If you jump on there and go to contact us and say, I want to know more about Jesus Christ. I want to know more about uh, joining uh, the community of believers. Um, then uh, th- just jump on there and I personally will get in contact with you. If you don't want to go through the contact us, you can email me at nathan at unihillchurch.com.au. Guys, let's be about being the church of God this week into the year to come and into the years to come. Let's take ownership of the church because we don't attend a building. We are actually the church itself. God bless you.